everybody. Welcome to Uncommon Sense. This is a podcast where we talk about all things American heritage and more. It's always fun and hilarious and interesting because we are fun and hilarious and interesting. Allow us to introduce ourselves. My name is Aime, and one time I stole a book from an Urban Outfitters. On to you guys. Huh. <laughs> Jerry, why are you looking at me like that? My name is Jerry, and I've never been to Urban Outfitters. <laughs> okay, JT, it's all you. No one's surprised. Um, my name is JT, and um, I, on my 21st birthday, had 21 shots. Holy shit. Okay. So, so let's cover some current events real quick before we jump into today's topic. And by the way, um, listeners, if you're new or old, if you want to find out if we're telling the truth about ourselves, you're going to have to listen to the whole episode where we will reveal all of our secrets at the end. Yeah, no, Motherfucker. Skipping, no skipping to the end to figure it out. No skipping. Unless you want. No, well, no. That's illegal. no one can stop you. We'll you'll never know. Actually, you'll get swatted if you try to do that. So don't try it. Yeah, we'll send a SWAT team to your car, to your house, to yeah, your our, condo. Our, our and private, we'll you up, and we'll sell your pets, and we'll eat, we'll eat, we'll eat all your fish food. Our our private SWAT team is on standby to storm your local bistro. We, we will replace you at family gatherings. We actually are your FBI agents, so we are watching you. All right, moving on. Uh, I want to discuss a little bit of current events. Lots of still politically turbulent things that are going on. I don't know if you guys heard, but the thing that has really got me going in um, the news circles right now is that Donald Trump and his had had um, had a phone call that is very talked about. Did you guys hear about that phone call? Did you guys hear about that? No. 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 Oh my God. So okay. Um, the headlines right now are all about Donald Trump called an elected official from Georgia, whose name is like, it's Brad something, Brad, like, Rabbers Burgers, I'm sorry, I can't remember his last name, but, so Georgia, um, yeah, Brad, well, actually, we're not too mad at Brad, I mean, he's a Republican, so I can be mad about that, but, um, Donald Trump gave him a phone call, and there was a lot of other, um, officials on the line that are inside Trump's legal circle that were monitoring the call, and it was recorded. It's an hour-long phone call. And in the call, Donald Trump, um, like, ostentatiously pressured this Georgian elected official to, uh, quote, unquote, find about 12,000 votes um, casted for Donald Trump to overturn the Georgian election, election results. Because for anybody who's unaware, Georgia has been in general elections a red state for the past 30 years. So for the first time in a long time, it flipped blue um, and it's, you know, it has a moderately high amount of electors. So that, that's a very momentous occasion in United States history. Um, and in a way, it makes sense. There's a very large entertainment industry that is increasingly growing in, in Georgia. Um, so, you know, demographic changes can account for that. And Donald Trump has been pushing this narrative about election fraud. So he called Brad. Uh, kind of rotated in between threatening and begging and, you know, all of these, all, all of these uh, unbecoming verbs to get Georgia to overturn the election results. So if you want to talk about, like, kind of mafia-esque behavior, you, you listen to the phone call. It's wild. I couldn't write this stuff. I took many screenwriting classes, and if I, I feel like if I wrote a character such as Donald Trump, like, saying the stuff that he actually says in real life, I would get, like, critiqued for being too on the nose. Like, it's very stereotypically villainous. I don't know if you guys, like, yeah, I, I, there, there's, like, um, videos online that um, separate parts of the calls and just, like, make a compilation. You don't feel like listening to the whole hour. You can just listen to, like, highlights, and it's crazy. So. Can, can we throw him in the trash yet? Or, like, are we allowed to do that? I mean, January just... 6th is, like, officially uh, take out the trash day. I'm very excited for it. A little bit worried sick. about, like, Joe Biden's safety. I'm highly concerned about that, but I'm sure that he and his people are also highly concerned about it. So hopefully every precaution necessary will be taken to prevent, like, something horrible happening. They know what's up. For sure. Um, there's this forum called the Donald.Win. <laughs> that is, um, I mean, if you want to, like, kill brain cells and waste time, is definitely, like, one of the great... I think, I think you discussed this with us uh, last week. Oh, did I? 
Well, yeah, about, would... about shamelessly like hoping for the death of liberals. Oh like, yeah, they like call. Just, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, you're right. I did mention that they like call for the wholesale slaughters of slaughtered liberals. I just go on there sometimes to like see what's up. Um, and the latest like thread title that I saw was literally it was verbatim. Daddy says B in DC on January sixth. I saw your Facebook post. That was funny. <laughs> like the just the fact that they call their Messiah Daddy unironically really gets me. <laughs> Jerry's making a face right now. <laughs> I wish you could see Jerry's face. <laughs> Y'all, I voted for Joe Biden, but watch me never call him Daddy like a fucking weirdo. No, I support the use of daddy behind a closed door and however many consenting adults in the room, yeah. not in the political sphere at Absolutely. all. Jerry, do you have any thoughts? Jerry's the, I always am interested I'm in just, Jerry's input because he's the least political of us three. I'm just, I'm just imagining and uh, like, like, like some kind of like big political event. It's like we have representatives from all over the world. <laughs> including but not limited to USA President Daddy. Oh God! Hey, Daddy! Daddy! Daddy, what is your opinion on the yeah, political structure of the world as a whole? Yeah. Uh, um. So that's that. We can look forward to January sixth when the official overturn takes place and we will be moving into a new era of American politics. I'm very curious to see where it goes because so much of Joe Biden's rhetoric is pushing unity and the, you know, bipartisanship. And I'm wondering how successful that will be, but only time will tell. Only time will tell. And a lot of people don't even want that. I mean, a lot of people don't want that. So we'll see how it goes. I can tell Biden's trying to be an Eisenhower-ish type of person with playing it down the middle of the road and trying to bind together two parties and lots of groups of people. I don't know if it'll work in this political climate or if it's the best thing for us, but we just got to kind of do our best and play our part. See what happens. That's right, man. That's right, man. Yeah, yeah dude. Yeah, man. That, uh, dad. Okay, well, that is um, the biggest kind of, like, breaking news thing that I've been seeing. Do you guys have any current events that you want to talk about before we get into the topic today? Nothing, uh, nothing comes to mind for me. Oh, uh, we got um, we got our $600 uh, stimulus checks today. Mm, good. Oh, yeah, that's uh, another thing. Going January on the 4th. Day. Yeah, awesome. Mitch uh, McConnell, you <laughs> fucking stack of shit. Did you did I ever talk to you about that tweet that <laughs> I thought was so fucking funny where it was shortly after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and somebody was like, how come the person that dies is never Mitch McConnell? Not saying I'm wishing death on anybody. I just thought that was a very funny tweet. Um, no real shit, though. <laughs> <laughs> he looks he looks like he died five years ago. His body Have you seen his hands? Decomposing. They're yeah. awful. It looks like fucking raw meat. Jerry, do you know that? Do you do? Have you been hearing about the zombie plague in the White House? The wasabi plague. The zombie? No, not wasabi. Zombie. Oh, I we're, we're still recording remotely, everybody. So the things don't go across the airwaves immaculately. Yeah, I was very confused. I was like, "What about a wasabi plague?" It's just like Mitch McConnell, these um, pictures surfaced a while ago of like his hand, his one hand is like turning bl black. Like he looks like he has gout. I heard that it could be because he's like taking blood thinners or something for heart issues. I don't know. Thin mm. blood. In any case, uh, the $2,000 stimulus check is another big current event because um, that vote is being putting into the Senate where Mitch McConnell will probably block it. But what I find really interesting is that Donald Trump has supported the $2,000 stimulus check. And I honestly think I like, I can't prove this of course, but I honestly think he's just mad that Senate Republicans haven't supported him as ostentatiously as he would like. They've been markedly quiet. Whereas there's 106 odd uh, house of representative Republicans who are, who signed a petition to, to overturn the election results. Cause they're, uh, they, they don't like democracy, I guess. And the Republicans in the Senate have not been so vocal. And Donald Trump, who is mad about that, uh, the sound of Jerry crinkling his water bottle. 
as now. I don't, I don't have ice, so this is the next best thing. <laughs> this is what we're getting. This is the acoustic phenomenon you guys all wanted. Um, uh, I know there's been a, a massive cry out for more ice. So. Ice noises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so anyway, my theory is that Donald Trump is like mad at the, the Senate, so he's like supporting it just to get revenge. Just to get revenge on them, make them angry. And if the public's going to benefit from that, then that's decent collateral, I guess. But just, like, trying to rock the boat as much as possible before he leaves, very Donald Trump thing to do. So, JT, you're going to say something? here. <laughs> I just want my two grand, man. I just we, want it. We can't have nice things. You no, think no, you, no, no, you no, can no, have no, nice here. things? Let me let me spite this country by using the money they're giving me to stimulate their economy to instead leave. Let me just please come on, <laughs> leave the country Denmark's, wholesale. You sh- you sh- Go live in Denmark. You shipper. Oh. oh no, we've discussed this. I'm I'm more than uh, almost almost definitely moving to London in September. London. Oh no, you didn't tell me September. Well, anyway, we can have that conversation later. <laughs> um. So today's topic is going to be discussing the 1920s, otherwise known as the Roaring Twenties, and some of the historical significance behind that specific decade. Uh, This was a time in America where it was kind of undergoing its second industrial revolution. Things like credit and the assembly line revolutionized manufacturing. The Sears catalog came out where people could use credit to... Uh, you know, buy now, pay later, which is something that we enjoy, we enjoy, like, take for granted in modernity. Um, This was also very famously the era in which women were enfranchised for the first time in American history, and this was also the time where prohibition had taken place, which led to a very famous and um, romanticized crime wave in American gangs and mobs. So we're going to discuss all these things and more. Stay tuned. Uh, Jerry, we talked about before we got started that you have an interest in kind of things like mobsters and gangs and stuff and i kind of want to get your input on like what your perspective is on that because there's obviously going to be like a dissonance between historical correctness and like what we know in like pop culture yeah uh so on the whole like a lot of like pop culture and like media and stuff like that that represents the mafia uh, usually shows them from more like romanticized point of view, which is kind of how like to sell it if you were going to sell such a thing. Uh, it's more entertaining that way. But uh, from what I've always seen, it's always been like the mob going around like strong arming small businesses and like for like protection money or like running bootlegged liquor or some combination of a bunch of different things, different like rackets and things of that nature. Uh, But on the whole, it's always the, how do you call it? Like the, the protagonists of the story, so to speak, Mm -hmm, are usually mm -hmm. the mobsters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's interesting because Al Capone, probably I would hazard one of the most, if not the most famous mobsters or gangsters or whatever you want. I'm not, is there like an actual difference between a mobster and a gangster? Are they different? I don't want to misappropriate terminology here. Um, Al Capone was a very... I think a mob is generally like a... Yeah. What's, what's a mob, JT? Tell me. I was going to say, uh, uh, um, I think a mob is generally, like to refer to the mob as such, um, is generally like a crime family, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that is is um, intentionally like a, a hereditary, not necessarily passing of genes, but like uh, I, I, you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, uh, yeah. Keep it in the it's family. A family, family. Yeah. They, yeah, they do crime. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Blue bloods. We're looking at you. Um, you know, whereas a, a gang is more just like a bunch of people just agree to do crime together. I think that that's what that is. Okay. Well, Al Capone is a very high-profile gangster. Um, They may have had a a familial opinion of each other inside the the Chicago group that they were all in, but we're going to go ahead and call him a gangster. I might accidentally... You know, don't get too hung up on the vernacular. So, Al Capone... Doesn't matter. Yeah. um, Actually, so... 
let's let's get a general let's establish baseline information here uh there was a wave of awareness regarding alcohol as a substance that was abused a lot um not not that that's much different now but you know in the 19 teens um and for a lot of time before that, a lot of people were bringing attention to the fact that there was a lot of crime and domestic abuse in particular that was resultant in alcohol and a lot in alcohol consumption. Uh, and a lot of that was kind of like entwined in um, women, uh, the feminist variety being disillusioned and upset that there was so much domestic abuse and just um, really, you know, awful you know, vices and untoward behavior that was resultant of overindulgence in alcohol. So from, a, and also a lot of Christian groups were very outspoken about similar things. And it was just increasingly pushing this paradigm that alcohol was very non-virtuous and very bad and caused a lot of bad things. So a combination of just kind of uh, conservative um, sociological agendas between feminists and Christianity made this push in Congress for illegalizing alcohol wholesale. So ultimately what that led to was an amendment to the Constitution that completely illegalized all consumption and sale of alcohol in the United States. Um, let me get my bearings here. So, you know, I I don't know what your guys' opinion on that as a solution for substance abuse is. Like, it, it, on paper, it's like if there's no alcohol allowed here, then maybe things will get better. But very famously, things kind of got worse because not only were people still buying and consuming alcohol, but there was a huge increase in criminal activity in the United States to perpetuate this trafficking of substances. So... The growth of gangs that revolved their activities around bootlegging and selling alcohol, you know, shot up at was were actually kind of just like to say that they grew exponentially would be implying that there was like this activity beforehand. And really, this was kind of the birth of bootlegging gangs. So um, this 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 crime wave gave birth to, you know, famous bootleggers and gangs such as Al Capone. And ultimately, um, when he got started doing, I think he, so Al Capone himself was a, a, an individual who was actually pretty smart. He was famous for being very strategic, except his education, his formal education, ended when he was 14 years old because he punched his teacher in the face and got expelled and never went back to school. Um, so he kind of was just working odd jobs, like he worked at like a candy store for a little while and did a few things here and there. And he ended up kind of getting pulled into the crime life. Um, his mentor got shot when Al Capone was in his 20s. Uh, so he kind of had a, had a reputation by then as being an intelligent member of the community and inherited the uh, the chicago-based gang that he was a member of and, and took it over when he was you know at the ripe old age of 26 i, I i'm 22 years old i can't imagine four years from now <laughs> heading some like really elaborate uh illegal business scheme like that but that ultimately is what came to pass and uh a lot of people were not mad about this specific brand of crime because people wanted their alcohol. So this this also gave birth to recreational things like speakeasies, very famously. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but the reason that they're called speakeasies is because they would be these like little bars and restaurants, literally underground, under actual businesses and like cellars and stuff, where you would have to speak softly and the music would have to be played softly and just not make a lot of noise so that they wouldn't be like caught by authorities and stuff. So everybody was advised to speak easy, which is why they're called speakeasies. Um, so Al Capone as a trafficker of alcohol was obviously, um, he ran his business well, you could say, and he, he was worth a lot of money. He had a lot of money. And Jerry, earlier when you mentioned, you know, kind of the stereotypical image of like um, mobs and gangs, you know, extorting and doing these like really illicit financial activities and threatening people and like you you want to think about the future of your family and like stuff like that um al capone's group would do things like if you were an alcohol if you were a business that bought and sold alcohol and you refused to work with al capone's group 
um, there were instances where those businesses who refused him would get blown up and as many as like literally blown up and as many as a hundred people are estimated to have died in those bombings but al capone was seen kind of as this like uh this virtuous savior in a way because he would use his financial leverage to do things like donate to charity and like for public relations stuff um he was good with that too so he actually garnered this good like robin hood kind of reputation of being an altruistic person and he had a very decent public opinion for a while so he would like go to baseball games and people would cheer him at the stadiums and he was like kind of becoming this this admired celebrity um, the thing is that that kind of crashed and burned, uh, you know, we, we, I don't think he, that he um, has a very fond public opinion now of, of, to speak of modernity. I don't think we look at Al Capone and say, oh man, that was a great guy. Um, and like, I think partly like the, the beginning of the end for that was the Valentine's Day massacre, which ultimately manifested in, in, in the form of seven, I think. I believe it was seven rival gang members were uh, murdered in a firing squad in like broad daylight at the hands of Al Capone, ostensibly, not literally, but like he, he spearheaded that event and so you know nice uh yeah so that that you know that event was highly talked about highly published it was the headlines of a lot of newspapers people uh you, you could say were upset to find out about <laughs> al capone facilitating this horrible thing happening so his public the 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 um, opinion of him more or less collapsed and he became public enemy number one in a way Blowing up businesses? Fine. Bustling in on protection money and rocketeering? Okay, you know, like, we could look the other way. Gunning down seven people while they're having dinner on Valentine's Day? Uh-uh. While it's Not light out? Fly here. While the, it's light out? Yeah. Yeah, I would say Al Capone just murdered too close to the sun. You know, he got a little bit if, too hubrisy. If he had waited until dusk, it would have been no issue. Yeah. Like, if everybody had tucked their kids in and everyone was asleep and you used really quiet guns, <laughs> then it would have been fine. But broad daylight, have some decency. Yeah, a speakeasy gun, come on. Yeah, exactly. And we speak easy in firing squads, too, okay? It, it, you know, the uh, the Tommy guns they use, they call them the Chicago typewriters. Because, like, I think it was, like, from a block or two away, it would sound like a typewriter. Really? Like, like the, yeah. Ooh! That's funny. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, so Al Capone, uh, I feel like the end of his story is pretty much well known because it's kind of ironic. Um, ultimately, he's kind of on the run for a while. Actually, so I don't know how many listeners are aware, but we had a lot of episodes kind of stacked up that got like accidentally deleted in a, in a technological misfire. And in one of the episodes we talked about um, famous American historical institutions, and one of them was Eastern State Penitentiary. And I feel like a lot of people are not aware of this, but Al Capone actually stayed for a few months, I want to say like eight or nine months or so at Eastern State, but it wasn't for killing people, it wasn't for bootlegging alcohol, and it was not for tax evasion. It was actually because Jerry Regan would be like, tax evasion. tax evasion. It wasn't. This was not that. Eventually he got caught for tax evasion, but he, he wasn't... Um, he wasn't incarcerated at Eastern State. When he was at Eastern State, it was because it was something like he they found a weapon in his car or something that he wasn't allowed to have. It was like he was carrying a concealed weapon that was illegal. So for a few months, he was in Eastern State. But like his headquarters, if you look up pictures of Al Capone's like cell in Eastern State Penitentiary, it was like really nice. It was like decked to the nines. He had like wall art. He had lamps. He had hutches and drawers and like a like a really nice bed. A mini bar chairs mini bar 52 inch flat screen um a projector nintendo 64 yeah like all yeah. the bells and whistles they let him have his nintendo switch so a lot of people actually think that like for a while his little cell at eastern state penitentiary was like a little hideout he was using i don't think there's like solid hard soil proof of that but some people do think that um 
ultimately uh, towards his his career of crime ended when authorities couldn't seem to get him for any of the bad things he was doing but investigations found that he had been evading paying his taxes and he was incarcerated on those charges so our justice was brought with tax evasion ultimately um, in while he was in prison he suffered from syphilis and then ultimately died suddenly of a stroke so kind of a uh, rags to riches, back down to rags. Sorry. And, Ain't that rich. Yeah. <laughs> very funny, Jerry. Very good, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One can hope. So, uh, you know, the, the whole prohibition thing, I don't know about it. Towards the end of the decade, um, that amendment, there was another amendment to the Constitution to undo that, the previous amendment. Um, what amendment? Was this the 21st and the 22nd Amendments? Do you guys happen to know which amendments these were with the Prohibition? No. We don't know? Okay. Well, I'm not I should. I just took a poly psych. <laughs> God damn it, Jerry. All right. Uh, well, are you looking it up for me? I want to say it's, yeah, okay. say it's the 20th and 23rd. No. I got to sneeze. Uh, yeah, yeah. sneeze. 18th Amendment was yeah, 18th amendment oh. was the prohibition uh -huh. and 21st amendment repealed it i guess the 19th amendment was women voting so that was what in, was in between that yeah and what the, the 20th yeah what i thought they were back-to-back -back amendments how did so many constitutional amendments happen in a decade uh the terms of the president and vice president shall end at noon on the 20th day of January. That's an amendment? Uh, and it's, yeah. They changed what day the, uh, because it used to be later than that. Okay. It used to be in, like, March. Okay. Uh, and it was, like, <laughs> it was to make things more streamlined after the election process. Yeah, there's some dumb amendments. I, yeah, I would say that's a, that's interesting. I think another dumb amendment. Uh, Go ahead. It also says that Congress has to assemble at least once a year. Oh, Jesus, and you mean Congress has to on work noon on January third? They have to meet on. They have to meet at twelve o'clock on the third day of January, uh, unless they shall, by law, be appointed for a different day. So, okay. Interesting fun facts. Thank you, Jerry, for providing that information. Here's another amendment Yay. I personally think is kind of stupid, and I wonder what other people think about it. I'm going to open a discussion here. There was an amendment sure. that was passed in actually 1951, I think. So this was, you know, not in the 1920s, but it, it does it kind of have to do with the 19... It, stuff that started building in the public eye of the 1920s ultimately led to this particular amendment. And the, the amendment I'm referring to is the one that limits the presidential term to just eight years. The, like the term limit is two terms. Um, and a big reason that that ultimately came to pass was because America was dealing with... Uh, a very public and a very widespread fear of like authoritarianism and dictatorial ship taking over in the executive wing of politics. Um, and a lot of that fear had to do with the kind of emergent paradigm of communism because we were observing in the USSR and later on in Germany uh, this the conflation of communism and dictatorialship and people kind of made the two synonymous and, and a lot of America was concerned that if a president could be president indefinitely, that could ultimately lead to an undoable sort of executive takeover. Now, to be clear, I don't know how I don't know if this is common knowledge or not, but when George Washington took office, um, he decided not to run again after his second term just because he was really sick of the job. And George Washington is responsible for so many presidential precedents, including the State of the Union address and, you know, and swearing on the Bible and so many things. And so when people came after him out of like respect and reverence to Washington uh, as a big reason, they would stop after two terms just on principle. But you, they never had to like legally do that. They could have all these presidents that you know were two-term presidents could have had more terms. Um, in fact, 
so, you know, FDR was elected four times. He didn't ultimately serve 16 years because he uh, passed away in his last term, but he was elected four times, which is the only time a president has been elected more than twice. And um, the amendment to the Constitution that I'm, discuss that I'm discussing with you happened um, after Harry Truman already ascended to the presidency. So Harry Truman was the last president who could have run more than twice because he was grandfathered out of that clause. You know, you know what I mean? But ultimately, he also stopped after two terms. So the whole so this fear of communism that I mentioned earlier is famously known as the Red Scare. And in the 1920s, this was the first kind of emergence of the Red Scare and this overwhelming like fear of communism and, and dictatorship and stuff like that. I will say, generally, when I think of, like, the Red Scare and, like, fear of communism or anything, my brain immediately goes to, like, the 1950s, mm -hmm. like, Cold War kind of era. Absolutely. So that's when I feel like a lot of it kind of got, like, widespread. Yeah. Uh, yeah, America and Russia had decent relations for a long time. Like, in fact, during the 1860s, um, Russia was, like, the only country that was really nice to America as we were having some international problems. Um, with like immigration and things like that. But Russia and America were like tight. And William Seward, I think, was the Secretary of State at the time during Lincoln's administration. Um, and Russia had this big landmass that was just icy and barren, that it did not know what to do with it. Russia was straight up like, we just have this big chunk of land that is nowhere near us, and it's kind of attached more to you guys. So if you like want it, we'll sell it to you for cheap. And William Seward was like, absolutely bitch bitch we'll take it and this is what you know this is the the civil war was going on so everybody was like um william seward why are you there's like other bigger things that are important like why the hell are you buying this land from russia um this land we know very affectionately of as alaska and at the time it was fucking worthless but seward had a feeling about it i guess and he bought it from russia anyway and then of course we struck oil there and it ended up being very lucrative for america to, to have possession of alaska so that was kind of tangential but just a fun fact about like how we got alaska it was called um alter like inter um What's the word I'm looking for? Um, interchangeably, Seward's icebox and Seward's folly, but now we just call it Alaska. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. After like we struck oil, wasn't it like a point of contention with Russia too? Like, uh, hey, we sold this to you for real cheap. Like, there's so much oil there. Like, Russia was hey, like, "Can we get a cut, please? Can I have your oil, bitch? Can I have it?" Actually, that's a good question. I am not sure how the international relations with Russia were affected by us striking oil, but talk about that. It's, you know, that might be an interesting like, thing to discuss. And like, I just imagine like, I just imagine Russia laughing like those idiots actually bought that chunk of ice. Like, come on, and like they're laughing about it for like a few, you know, like like a hundred years or however long it took for us to strike oil there. Because I'm very uneducated in this. No, I don't know. I don't know. Aspect of we get oil, and they're just like, hey, say psych right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Russia might have been a little bit salty about that. Um, anyway, back to the topic at hand. I kind of got off on a tangent there. Just little, just little fun facts for you. But we yeah. We never get on tangents here. <laughs> oh, no, never. That never happens. <laughs> But so in the 1920s, like keep in mind for historical context, this was kind of coming off the heels of World War One. So a lot of like the sentiment in the American public was like, we are so done with war and we're so done with this law and the other thing. Like America entered World War One in 1917 um, because of something. Well, there were a lot of things that were building up to it, but, you know, we've discussed it very bare bones in the past on, on this podcast. One of the big reasons we joined was because um, German U-boats and submarines were antagonizing American ships when previously they had pledged not to do that because um, Woodrow Wilson was very much who was president in the 19 teens very much like anti-war pacifistic doesn't want to be involved kind of president but american ships kept getting antagonized by germany and it was a very big concern then ultimately something called the zimmerman note was discovered from a german ambassador to mexico and it said that um it was encouraging um 
antagonization of American ships, even despite verbal agreements, maybe even written agreements, I, I don't even know, agreements that had been reached um, for Germany to remain neutral in regards to America. Then, you know, the Lusitania sank, um, and that with the German U-boats and the Zimmerman note all kind of led up to America having no feeling like it had no choice but to join World War One a few years after it had started in 1917. And World War One was really, um, really awful, obviously, for the American troops. Um, and everybody in the Allies, it kind of is famous for trench warfare, which describes um, the soldiers having to dig literal a, net, a network of trenches. And in between the the trenches where there would be fighting was this elevated land called no man's land. That was just this like uh, if you if you were kind of to be on the front lines in that particular chunk of land, you were like really in danger. So people would stay in the trenches so much with such deplorable living conditions that they would develop really bad diseases. Um, I think the, was it the Spanish flu that was like taking people out during World War One? I? I think in the first year of America's participation, it, the, the Spanish flu, I think it's the Spanish flu. I don't know if it was this, some kind of illness, some kind of influenza actually killed more Americans in the first year than war casualties. So there's just a lot of illness, a lot of suffering, a lot of trench foot, um, a lot of like having your clothes soaking wet and muddy all the time. So World War One was very bad. And when we came out of that in the 20s, everybody was so excited to be. It was the Spanish flu. I'm seeing you nod, Jerry. Spanish flu. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. I know things sometimes. Uh. So, you know, in the 1920s, when we came off of World War One, everybody was so excited for this war to be over and like never wanted to be in a war again that in the political sphere, isolationism was like the thing. That was like the stylish thing. And Warren G. Harding was very much kind of having his campaign be like all about isolationism and not being involved in like international affairs anymore. We were gonna try and be Sweden <laughs> that we know today. Uh, we all know how that turned out ultimately, but we tried, we gave it a good shot. But in the 1920s, everybody was just blissfully thinking that we were actually going to be neutral and that everything was going to be happy. And it was a very, uh, very jubilant decade, very much full of like roaring. Even it was roaring. You could even say it was you roaring. Might say roaring. You might. A music and movie. Um, we can kind of get into the pop culture of the 1920s as well. This was a time yeah. when like American um, celebrities, like we today. There are so many celebrities <laughs> that it's hard to keep track of them all. I don't even know, like, two-thirds of, like, the high-profile actors and actresses and musicians anymore. In the 1920s, this was the first time that, like, that kind of thing, that sort of, like, superstardom emerged as a concept. So, obviously, before that, like, people were, you could say, quote, famous because, like, everybody maybe knew who Abraham Lincoln was in the 1860s and everybody knew who George Washington was and the 1790s so we had had famous people before but the whole advent of like being a celebrity in the context that we know today of it not being like everybody knowing about this particular political figure because of stuff he does in Washington DC is like kind of what started to emerge and sort of who's regarded as like the first celebrity do either of you guys know who, who kind of has that title Jerry any guesses First celebrity, I'd assume it would be, if I had to guess, like, before that build-up, I would have guessed it was some kind of composer. It's not a composer. Actually, this is surprising. It doesn't have anything to do with acting or music. No guesses? No guesses? Want to phone a friend? No? So, the first celebrity is widely regarded to be Charles Lindbergh. Do you guys know who that is? Is he an author? He was not an author. Pilot, he did the transatlantic flight, right? Yes, good job, Jerry. You win a prize. Um, hey. Charles Lindbergh is the first person to fly across the Atlantic. He did use a plane, so you know, <laughs> not you he know, didn't just flap his arms real hard. No, he didn't use a hang glider. Um, yeah, so he was the first pilot to fly across the Atlantic Ocean and was very famous for that. And a lot of people just loved the hell out of Charles Lindbergh. So he was kind of like the first person who was like, had this superstardom. And um, 
Charles Lindbergh's story is kind of sad because um, this is pretty famous. I don't know too much about it, but I, he was, you know, at first he was famous for piloting across the Atlantic Ocean, but then his baby got kidnapped. And this is like very famously called the Lindbergh baby unsolved mystery. Um, and there was like a, a ransom note and it was so widely publicized and talked about like, I don't think anybody ever found his kid. And it kind of went down to this unsolved mystery. I don't know if I'm completely, Jerry, would you mind looking that up for me? If that case was ever solved, Lindbergh baby. Um, that was kind of like an unwelcome collateral effect of being a celebrity is like having your child kidnapped for ransom. Definitely not a good thing. But it gave rise to that kind of paradigm of like admiring somebody from a distance, just like being famous for being famous. Um, and on the heels of that came like things like movies and music getting really elevated. Uh, so the 1920s was the first instance of moving pictures being commercialized and people would go to these theaters and pay a nickel to see a talkie or a, a movie. So I'm trying to think about the, I, I believe that the first movie with sound was in the 1920s and I believe it was called The Jazz Singer. Uh, I don't know exactly what the plot of the movie was, but it's, it was very racist because I believe the protagonist was a white man in blackface and it was kind of about the advent of jazz music, which is, um, very historically significant with with black musical culture in particular so very racist movie but it was the first uh, movie with sound i think ever not just in america but ever um and these movie theaters that you know the hip kids would go to to and pay a nickel to see were called nickelodeons because you would pay a nickel and that's where that word comes from. When I found out that like that the the children's television network had not coined the term Nickelodeon, I was beside myself learning that it was a, actually a thing. Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, pretty cool. I myself, I haven't seen any like silent movies or early talkies. Like I haven't done the historical dive into like observing those movies as historical documents so to speak but the whole birth of like cinema and movies is very like it's a very interesting story i feel like we could spend a whole other podcast episode talking about how the technology of film was discovered and subsequently commercialized um but it like absolutely yeah it, it, it was um kind of blending music and cinema too was interesting and uh kind of figuring out how to weave audio engineering into moving pictures was a very big development in the cinematic circles because actors, because it, it changed everything. Actors who previously um, were like, so before there were microphones recording audio, the directors would just tell the actors what to do in real time. So you wouldn't necessarily have to memorize everything or know where your marks were, or have the choreography like intimately memorized because the directors and the tech people would just be saying like, okay, Johnny, I need you to move to the left and then do this thing. And then when Susie comes on set, I need you to go over there and da -da -da -da. And that would be like happening while they were actually doing the takes. But then when audio engineering came into play, directors couldn't just do that anymore because you would be able to hear it. So then this, you had to actually start memorizing blocks and you have to start memorizing scripts and um you know people who didn't have good voices had trouble transitioning into the advent of musical theater because all of a sudden these actors in these movies were expected to sing and to project their voices and it, it just it just led to like a whole other craftsmanship being born in the in the world of film and that that you know that, that was something that was very culturally significant in the American 20s. And, you know, so JT, as like a musical person, um, do you have any like pre-knowledge about kind of um, sort of the advent of like music and pop culture early on in American culture? Not. Nope. <laughs> JT's like, nah, I just play that. I just play music and I enjoy myself. I just, you know. Middle C, you know, it's Absolutely. the third one. That's all, yeah, that's all I know. Middle C. I think middle actually, C like, C. in the 1920s, ragtime, speaking of middle C, ragtime was a very big thing in the 1920s, and that's kind of like, I, I don't understand, I don't, I don't, I've heard different definitions of rag. I hear from some people, it's literally just like, you 
take a musical composition and then you change the timing to add like a bounce to it and if it has that certain timing it's rag and you can rag any song you could literally take god is a woman by ariana grande and rearrange it a little bit and make it a ragtime like make it in ragtime well so um, I'm looking at it here. Ragtime, also spelled ragtime or ragtime, uh-huh. is a musical style that enjoyed its peak popularity between 1895 and 1919. Its cardinal trait is its syncopated or ragged rhythm. Um, so generally speaking, when you refer to something as um, something time, um, in the instance of half time, double time, punk time, you're changing the count. You're changing how quickly you go from um, one, or, or rather more so how uh, you take the rhythm that you're hearing and how it's subdivided. So to to talk about like a, a normal, like 120 beats per minute, kind of what to do that in halftime would be mm-hmm. to do that in double time would be. Yeah. And then part time would even be twice as fast as that. So uh, what you're saying about ragging something it makes sense. Um, but to speak to it, I really, <laughs> none will so, you know, um, okay, here you go. So, uh, yeah, just, it's, a, it just talks about syncopation, yeah. which is, is just the way you, you, well, you know, tuck, tuck things away rhythmically. Yeah. I mean, musical historians out there i'm sure that you're probably losing your mind right now wanting to like having having the necessary information to explain this i think jerry is back to report on the Lindbergh baby i have i've read this uh this article on fbi.gov uh on this case the case was solved okay two years in one month to catch the guy who did it uh the name of said individual being uh bruno richard hoffman bruno mars is gay no no <laughs> i mean maybe bruno richard hoffman uh yeah he was arrested september 19th 1934 and i believe the kidnapping itself happened uh march 1st 1932 was the kid so about alive? Like, uh, no, they found the kid accidentally uh, in a partially dug grave uh, on. Ooh. I think it was April. One second, let me find the exact date again. Uh, I believe it was April of nineteen thirty-four. Yeah. That's tragic. No, on May 12th, 1932, uh, it was accidentally found. So, almost two years after the body was found of the child, it took another, yeah, it took another two years to find a guy who did it. Oh, I see. So, I guess the series of events was like, the child went missing. That was publicized. Then they found the body, but didn't know who had done it. And then they found the guy after a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so uh, unfortunately, that's something Charles Lindbergh is, you know, known for. He's kind of being elevated to superstardom and then uh, subsequently having your child kidnapped and murdered. Very sad, uh, kind of how celebrity ships started in America, but that's that for you. Um, as you know, so, okay, I don't know how to transition smoothly from that, but there's, you know, more felicitous things we can discuss about the 1920s. Um, Jerry, while we were while you were in- investigating the Lindbergh baby, we were talking about things like music and movies. Um, uh, happier things. Happier things. Happier things. I feel like there's kind of this um, sociological veil over the 1920s where it's really glorified. I mean, the aesthetic of 1920s, like speaking artistically, was very much art deco. And there was this kind of like wave, this like renaissance of architecture where everything was very much like um, very expressive lines and like very metallic. And like if if you're not, not sure what art deco looks like, it's like that stereotypical like 1920s aesthetic when you see advertisements like and if you can picture just like 
really clean geometric lines not cubism though it's hard to describe verbally if you're listening and you want to know what art deco looks like all i can say is google images it's very clean it's a very well-known aesthetic like when you see it you'll know it um for sure uh, so art art deco is is i googled it i'm looking at it right now and it's for sure a lot of like really hard edges everything's uh, as I may saying, geometrically like satisfying uh, a lot of right angles and such, whereas art deck, or excuse me, cubism is more like abstract. That, yeah, and, that's and more like Picasso. Find. Like when I, because yeah, when I yeah. say like geometric, I want people to think of like kind of almost robotic architectural, like um, very meticulously placed lines, whereas cubism is like kind of almost randomly placed shapes and like messing with dimensions and stuff. And that with the cubism was um, later. That was after the 1920s. Um, yeah, there was this, there was this very you know, advertising, such a huge thing in the 1920s, especially with the Sears catalog being released. I think this was the first time you could kind of browse a catalog and order something and use credit to order it. So the whole like commercialism and manufacturing really, as we know it today, really, really got started in the 1920s. I would say the first American Industrial Revolution is widely regarded to have taken place in the 1870s. And then it kind of got a second renaissance in the 1920s. Um, and with the advent of credit, the whole like manufacturing thing. Uh, Henry Ford was an important figure during this manufacturing renaissance because when he was manufacturing his car parts, he kind of made this factory system that is well known as the assembly line where everything was streamlined very systematically. Um, so with this kind of emerging as is, is, is industrialization and commercialization, um, one thing that um, kind of is is taken for granted now. So, see, I keep losing my train of thought because there's so much about like manufacturism that had to do with the 1920s. I don't know where we would be without credit. I mean, would things be better with or without credit? How? how uh, things would be better with credit if we also taught people how to use it. Yeah, you know, rather than just, hey, guys, bury yourselves in debt. Like, yeah, I, I would say generally money management with, with or without credit would be a, a good thing to focus on. I remember what I was going to say with this manufacturing thing, planned obsolescence became a thing in the 1920s. Like, I'm sure you could find smaller isolated examples of this, but planned obsolescence to give a definition is like, when a company makes something specifically so that it will break a little bit later so that you have to buy the next model. That was something that I'm pretty sure got really started in the 1920s with just things like household items, like stoves and ice boxes and, and whatever. So that like with the Sears, Sears catalog, the Sears catalog, you'd order something and you could pretty much expect for it to not run very well, like a year later. Um, and we see that reflected very, like, transparently in a lot of things today, especially I think, like, Apple products is a really great example of just a company that, like, shamelessly uses planned obsolescence and breeds brand loyalty with that. Like, I don't know if you guys heard about this, but Apple famously, like, people started in mass noticing that their phones would just kind of stop working after, like, a year and somebody found this like chart of Google searches where it was like a line graph. And um, every year, like on the dot, there would be this enormous spike of like Google searches that were to the tune of iPhone running slow. And it was it, the way that it spiked systematically like that, like you could anticipate when a huge amount of people would search that made everyone suspicious. And so Apple had to like release a statement that was like, we design our things to to not work after a certain period of time so that you have to buy it again and then so that like they couldn't get sued for people buying things that were not reliable <clears throat> and they and, and i mean apple is like i feel like i'm just a master of breeding brand loyalty even with little things like my sister i have an android and I'm not ashamed of it, and I won't be shamed. And my sister is an iPhone person, and she's like, when I get texts from you and from other Android users, it's in this, like, 
the text box is this like ugly green that only shows up from Android phones and you can't change it. And they, it's like these little hypnotic things that they put in their technology to like breed to like have you be in the Apple product cult. Yeah, it's just, just like, do we have the 1920s I, to thank? <laughs> I, I have a Google phone. A Google phone? Yeah, I have a Google Pixel. So an Android. Yeah, 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 it runs on Android. Yeah. I have the iPhone 12, the newest one. No. Oh, when did you get that? I got it for Christmas. Oh, so it should, you know, stop working around Christmas. Hey. Hey, you fuck. Hey, listen here. You, you fuck. Uh, probably. <laughs> well, JT. No. Uh, how do you feel about being yeah. an Apple consumer? I'm fine with it. Um, okay. I have never paid first. Uh, I've never paid full price for any Apple anything ever. Uh, they've only ever been given to me or I purchased them refurbished. Um, I really am only stimulating the economy, not Apple. So I'm fine with it. You know, it's like I, I get to I get to use their things and their nice, sleek, shiny blue phones and um just enjoy that and not worry about supporting their business. I I feel like Apple took the phrase an apple a day keeps the doctor away and just You motherfucker. You piece of shit. You could actually afford yeah. a doctor if you didn't buy Apple. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, uh, stole, <laughs> I stole that really? joke from Epic Rap Battles. I wish I could claim that, but I can't. <laughs> I thought I recognized that. <laughs> I recognize that, but a pang of shame runs through my entire body. I mean, what if you were right? I am always right. What if you were... Well... That's true. That's the whole point of this podcast. Oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot. <laughs> what if I was I right about what? I wish you all could see what Aimee just did with her tongue in the I camera. Just, after... I just tried to touch the tip of my nose. That's all I did with my tongue. It was nothing inappropriate, it was nothing alarming, and it was nothing illegal. All I did was try to touch my nose. Jerry's making it sound like I tried to kill somebody I, with my tongue. I, I didn't even say Not that it happened yet. Which it I've never, which I've never done. I've never tried to kill anybody with my tongue. Lie. I'm guessing that one's a lie. <laughs> well, I don't have to say anything about it because that wasn't the thing that I said in the beginning, so you'll never know. Okay. You'll have one for the okay. I guess. <laughs> you guys have extra time to think about it and investigate. Yeah. <laughs> Frantically searching Facebook. <laughs> Facebook memory. Two years ago, you tried to murder a man. <laughs> With your tongue. With that little um, muscle yeah. inside your mouth. How much time do we have left for this week? We're pretty much at the end. My phone is high. It says it's been about 55 minutes. So we can pretty much wrap up any time now, actually. Gotcha. Sure. You turned into, like, Porky Pig there for a second. That's all. It's been about 55 minutes. We covered a lot. Just as an epiphany here. We covered a lot of things about the 1920s very briefly, but obviously we can't really even begin to scratch the surface of, like, everything that happened in a whole entire decade. So I very much encourage people to do their own research. And if there's any specific topic that anybody wants to have discussed, I have no idea how you would contact us, but find a way and let us know. Oh, also, I wanted to say about Apple... Y'all can be mad that this podcast is not on iTunes because I am the person that like runs everything about the podcast and I don't have an Apple product, so I can't have this thing distributed to iTunes. So that's another reason I don't like Apple. I don't fuck with them. They don't like me, so I yeah. don't like them. Yeah, man, fuck. It's fair. <laughs> yeah, man. And all, and all that. Well, on that note, I think we want to reveal if we're liars or not. If we're dirty, rotten liars. Yeah. Who wants to go first? All right. Uh, I may. You should go first. Yeah. You present it first. Okay, my lie was that I stole a book from an Urban Outfitters. Yeah. Um. I don't think you did. Yeah, I don't think I don't Urban Outfitters. I'm not sure, but I don't think Urban Outfitters sells books. <laughs> I, I think they might. I just don't think you're the type to steal. Okay, well, I did. I did steal a book from an Urban Outfitters, but here's the thing. 
I, it was more like I was holding the book and walking around and I forgot I was holding it and I walked out with it. Um, and then we got like a pretty decent distance away from the store in the mall. And I was like, oh my God, I stole this book. And I went back and I gave it back. So I, and I so you it. didn't oh. steal it. You borrowed it. Uh, I, f yeah, sure. We, yeah, we can say that. But yeah, I get you. Get into semantics, but in my opinion, I definitely stole that jaunt, and then, but but it, but it was an accident, <laughs> and I gave it back. Yeah. I have been in the presence of somebody who has stolen things from a grocery store and didn't do anything about it. So maybe you could call me a a thief, a filcher, a demon, and that yeah. <laughs> Good out. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, yes, so I believe I was the one who had said things next. I think so. Yeah. Uh, I had said that I've never been to an Urban Outfitter. <laughs> the fact that you said Urban Outfitter instead of Urban Outfitters makes me think that that's true. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know how... I don't know how this is going to come off, Jerry. I hope not poorly, but I don't think I've ever seen you wear something that I thought would have come from an Urban Outfitters. <laughs> it could be the like, like, thing. Like I, I don't mean that harmfully. I just mean that you don't dress in a way that would indicate that you shop there. It, well, it could be that somebody dragged him to an Urban Outfitters against his will. Maybe sure. He didn't buy anything there. I guess. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think you've been to right. You don't think I've been to one? No. There's also none no, nearby. Not. You'd have to, like, have gone out of your way. Yeah, you'd have to go to, like, KOP. Uh, so I have been to an Urban Outfitters. Oh my god, you uh, lied for the was... first time! Yeah, it was ah! about Urban Outfitters. This is history. Uh, it's historic. Here we go, everybody. Um, but the reason that I went to the Urban Outfitters is there was, like, an hour-long wait at the Cheesecake Factory at the... At KOP. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Is this when I ran into you? Oh my god! Ah, when I was with... Oh, JT, you should have known! There, and the, the people I was there with uh, were like, hey, let's just walk around Urban Outfitters for a bit. And I was like, oh, alright, I guess. I've never been there. And that was the first and last time I've ever been to an Urban Outfitters. Y'all, so, um, y'all haven't been to KOP? The There's a Cheesecake Factory in... It's like the biggest mall in America. I think it's bigger than the one in Minnesota at this point. Um, It's Minnesota, right? The so, it's not the uh, biggest yeah. mall, but it has the most amount of stores per no, square yeah. foot. No, I think that's it has right. more the square mall footage. The America is larger. No, I think it's. I don't think that's true anymore. I think they expanded it, and now it has more square okay, footage. What, 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 ha what has one, what is the other, whatever. I don't know. Whatever. Well, anyway, there's a cheesecake factory sure in there. KOP is not the biggest. And then right across, there's an Urban Outfitters, if you've never been to the KOP mall. I gotta look this shit up. Hold on. JT, you wanna go ahead and say your thing? Yes, I claimed to have had 21 shots on my 21st birthday. Uh, I'm going to say that's a lie. Yeah, I think you'd be okay. dead. I may. I'm, it's a lie. Dead? You'd be dead. I Yeah, you'd be dead. You'd, I'm pretty sure you'd be dead. Yeah, no, I had nine. I was about to Wait, say, because, like, my upper like echelon... Yeah, my upper echelon was, like, I've had, like, 15 drinks in four hours, and I was, like, not in a great spot, and I am much larger than you, cheat. <laughs> And I was like, no way this boy had 21 shots. And, like, I don't drink, like, very regularly at all. <laughs> okay, well, apparently, King of Prussia, according to this Wikipedia page, I don't know when it was updated, but according to this Wikipedia page, it's the third largest mall in America and has, like, 2,700,000-something square feet, and the Mall of America has, like... 5.6 million square feet and American Dream in New Jersey which I've never even heard of has 3 million square feet so fuck me I guess I really thought I yeah but KOP I'm pretty sure KOP has the most like the highest density of stores in the, one this, mall. this Wikipedia page says that it has 450 stores and the Mall of America has 555 it's by square footage it has like it's oh this, Oh, yeah. oh, like you said, density. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe that could be. Mm -hmm. Could be. Could be. Well, anyway, um, yeah. Yeah. it's the most packed. 
It's the most packed. Sewers. It is a city. It is an indoor city. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah. I yeah. Think... So, you know, I, I think that we've pretty much gotten to the end here. So thank everybody so much for listening. For returned listeners, thank you so much. We love the fuck out of you. And we hope that you come back yeah. for more in the future. Um, tune in next week for another episode of Uncommon Sense, where I don't know what we'll discuss, but it'll be something and it'll be good. My name's Aime. I'm Jerry. I'm JT. <sighs> fucking JT. I'm talking JT. We, we don't hire you to say All right. All right. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Mm. Mm.